I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of The Trade Guys, we catch up on US-EU trade and explain why President Trump has named one of his advisors the Lobster King. Plus, we look into whether China is on track to meet its phase one energy purchasing commitments. And we'll break down the new WTO decision on cigarette plane packaging. Stay tuned for all that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Trade guys are back in the house. Well, actually, we're stuck in the house from Bethesda, still stuck in our respective houses. But, you know, looks like we might be able to bust out pretty soon, uh, according to Governor Hogan. We'll see. Anyway, guys, we've got a lot to talk about today. Let's start by talking about the EU and the US. What is going on with our friends in Europe? Please tell me. Well, from my point of view, the same thing that's been going on for 30 years, we are at odds on a whole bunch of issues, small and large. We are at odds philosophically on the WTO and what kind of organization it should be. You know, my rants about chickens are famous, I think, on on this podcast, but that's just symptomatic of, you know, lots and lots of very specific issues we've been unable to clear up. Uh, the big one right now, which Commissioner Hogan alluded to, of course, is the Boeing Airbus case where they are very anxious to have a negotiated solution. We've been resisting because we have the upper hand right now. We've been able to retaliate and they have not. They're hoping that soon, which it could mean, you know, this week, well, next week probably, um, the arbitrator will give them a number that will authorize them to retaliate against us. They're hoping it'll be a number as big as our number, which was $7.5 billion, because they think that will lead to a negotiation. I think their number will be a lot smaller than that. Uh, and I think uh, Lighthizer has not wanted to negotiate because that's what he expects. You know, he expects to have more leverage um, after the uh, EU number comes out rather than less. But these are all irritants, you know, and we're not making progress on any of them. And now Hogan is saying, you know, it looks like because of the election, we won't make progress at any of them. So I'm not optimistic. So just to clarify for our listeners, the Hogan you're talking about is Trade Commissioner Phil Hogan, not the governor, Larry Hogan, who I referred to, the governor of Maryland, at the beginning of the podcast, just to to clear up any – Larry is the one that's going to let us out of our house. Uh, Phil is the one that's going to buy our chickens. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, I I wish them both luck. uh, Both important to the state of Maryland. Yes, they are. Yeah. Uh, but this is the oddity about the EU-US relationship. There's a massive commercial relationship, and it's by and large extraordinarily productive. We're the largest investor in the foreign investor in their market. They're the largest foreign investor here. We make things together. We work well on the commercial side. US businesses succeed in Europe. European businesses succeed here. That said, there's a long list of irritants that we can't seem to be able to make zero progress on. And a lot of them are, are old irritants, almost all the agricultural uh, irritants, of which there are legion, um, date back to the common agricultural policy of the 1950s, perhaps even before. So we just we just can't solve problems. And uh, so it's an, odd, it's an odd thing because the, the mutual benefits of the relationship are really endless. So... 
What do you guys think the U.S.-EU trade relations are going to look like for the rest of Trump's term? Because the EU certainly knows that we have an election in November. You know, my guess is the, it'll continue to be a punching bag. Think of it as the president's voodoo doll. You know, every once in a while, he'll stick a pin in the lobster part or he'll stick a pin in the cars <laughs> part of, of Europe. And, and, and he'll feel better because there are things that he likes to point to which demonstrate an unfairness in the relationship. That's his narrative. His narrative is our so-called friends are, are, are cheating us. He loves to point out specifically how they're cheating us, but nothing ever gets changed. And the advantage he has in this particular case is that he's right uh, about a lot of the stuff. They are cheating us. But yeah. I, I think the, the thing that's sad about it is that we have so much in common uh, and we both face yeah. the common challenge of, of China and we both know that, but we right. can't seem to get over these little things, whether it's uh, chickens or lobster or, uh, you know, uh, automobile safety requirements. But you know, underlying all this, there's real substance underlying this. It's not just protection. I mean, the Europeans have a very different view about how to approach regulation than the Americans do. And a whole bunch of different things flow from that. Uh, the American regulatory approach tends to be descriptive. Here's the standard we want you to meet. You know, so many parts per million of uh, emissions. And you know, when I worked for Senator Hines, we, had, we were obsessed with uh, the number of rat hairs in ketchup. And you won't be, su be surprised to know it's not zero. <laughs> there, there is actually a federal standard for this. Please do not tell me this. You know that ketchup is my favorite vegetable. It, it is well that we had that argument too, because uh, uh, Heinz was in office when that when Reagan declared it the vegetable for for uh, uh, school lunch purposes. But uh, yeah, it was embarrassing. <laughs> I forgot about that, and he was right. It was a vegetable. Yeah, <laughs> still is. <laughs> it was also embarrassing. But the, the point is, we tend to say, you know, that's the number you have to meet. Get there any way you can. And the European approach is different. The European approach is build it this way, cook it this way, design it this way, and then it will be okay, which is, if you think about it, a profoundly anti-innovation approach, because what it basically says is this is the safe or environmentally correct or healthy way to design your product. And if you follow these instructions, you'll be fine, which kind of tells people, don't go out and come up with something better. You know, just follow the guidebook. It's a fundamentally different approach than the Americans. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's been so difficult over the years to make common ground on these things. And this is not some trivial surface issue. These very deeply rooted. I think it goes all the way back to our legal systems, because now Europe, now that Britain is, has left, uh, has a civil law system, which is so the law is the instrument of the king. And, and it is a top-down legal system, whereas the United States has the common law system, which is bottom-up. And our regulatory approaches are, are basically privately managed. Uh, standards are privately managed, I should say. And our regulatory apparatus is much more bottom-up, as you would expect in a common law jurisdiction. And therefore, it doesn't make decisions about things that it doesn't have to where Europe is much more into specifying from the top down. So it's very difficult to reconcile the systems. That's all I'm saying. You know, some people think that the Holy Trinity in cooking is celery, onions, and uh, green peppers. But in New Orleans, it's really ketchup, mayonnaise, and hot sauce. <laughs> is that the Holy yes. Trinity? And I thought it was okra or whatever it was. Uh, celery, and, and what's the rest of it? Celery, onions, and uh, what is the third thing? <laughs> <laughs> Green peppers. Thank you. Yeah.
But but no, it's really ketchup, mayonnaise, and hot sauce. But I digress. Let me ask y'all about a northern fish. What is going on with lobsters? I don't get this. And Trump said that Peter Navarro is lobster king or lobster man, as opposed to the tiger king or the lobster king. I mean, what's going on here? First, to clarify for our our uh, listeners in Maine, uh, I want to point out that lobster is not a fish; it's a crustacean. Uh, but it is delicious. Thank you for seafood. that. <laughs> That's yeah. right. And uh, it is a delicious seafood. It's been cultivated by Maine lobstermen for years. Uh, it's a very important export for Maine. Uh, the president would very much like to have Maine in his column in November and is focusing attention on it. Now, but the story goes back a few years. The Maine Lobster Association did a marvelous job of, of cultivating business relationships with restaurants in China. And Maine had had secured a, a large amount of export volume that was based on that relationship they built over many years and really created a taste for Maine lobster. It did a lot of branding and excellent work. Well, along come Chinese tariffs or U.S. tariffs on Chinese goods, I should say. And uh, one of the things that China quickly added to their retaliation list was lobster. And uh, so all of a sudden, that business that had been built by the, the Maine lobster industry wound up in the hands of those rascally Canadians who tend to think those lobsters swimming off the shore of Newfoundland are not Maine lobsters. They mm. think of them as Canadian lobsters. Sure. So, they have little uh, maple leaves on the back of their shells. That's how you can tell. Yeah, <laughs> like hockey jerseys. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but they're nicer. Maine lobsters are nicer and kinder, and less disruptive. <laughs> the, the point being, now Maine has a problem. The, the lobster industry has a problem, no place to sell it. And they'd, uh, they'd really like to do that. The president is trying to help the Maine lobster industry, and he's trying to help them by uh, by opening markets someplace else. So I think that's the that's what's going on more than anything else. The other factor is that in the middle of all this, you know, the Canadians negotiated a free trade agreement with the EU, and uh, that means tariffs go to zero, including lobster tariffs. So that the lobster tariff that the EU has on the United States, which Trump is complaining about, uh, the Canadians don't have that anymore, thanks to uh, CETA the Canadian-Europe uh, trade agreement. Uh, and so they're picking up market share that uh, we have not taken advantage of because our trade agreement negotiations with the Europeans have gone nowhere. So why can't the U.S. and the EU resolve the uh, aircraft subsidy issue? Boeing first came to President Carter trying to get this fixed. There's a, this is a, there's a story about this. Carter was inclined to do something about it. And th at that point, it was early enough you know, uh, that they could have done something. I mean, th this is a classic case of the one of the axioms of, of politics is the, the longer you wait to fix something, the fewer choices you've, you've got and the more expensive they are. We could have nipped this in the bud in 1978 uh, early on if the United States had taken uh, decisive action. But what happened was uh, Frank Borman, the, who I think had been an astronaut, who was at the time CEO of, I think, then Eastern Airlines, came in to tell Carter and uh, tell Carter that if you do this, uh, it's going to destroy the airlines because he wanted to buy European aircraft. Uh, he wanted a competitor for Boeing because he thought that would lower prices. And Carter didn't do anything. And now you see what happens. Boeing has brought this back several times, but they didn't pull the trigger until about 15 years ago and insist on a, that a case be brought. And But you're right. Even now, 15 years later, uh, we're still arguing about it. And I think the reason is that, well, right now the reason is, as I, I said, both sides have brought complaints against each other. Both sides have won. 
because of the uh, filing schedules, our case is ahead of the European case. So we won sooner than they won. We have got been authorized to retaliate in the amount of $7.5 billion. They are awaiting uh, the number that they are allowed to retaliate. They maintain, I don't know if they believe this privately, I've talked to them several times about this, they maintain they're going to be authorized to retaliate in the same amount that we are, that in other words, that our subsidies are as bad as their subsidies. I think that's wrong, but we'll wait and see. I, I think Lighthizer uh, probably has the same view I do, that our number is bigger than theirs, and that let's wait and see that, because then they won't have negotiating leverage, and we will. So I don't think he wants to negotiate. If you ask him about that, he'll say, we're not negotiating because they haven't put anything on the table. If you ask the Europeans, they'll say, you know, we put things on the table, he just doesn't like them. The problem we have is this will not be easy. What the Europeans basically would like to see is an outcome in which everything they've done for the past 30 years is forgiven if they promise not to do it anymore. And I think for the United States, that's not going to be, not going to be good enough. I think the United States is going to want compensation for what they've done for the last 30 years. Uh, and the Europeans are not going to want to pay. I mean, Scott, do you have a different take on it? No, I think that's right. It's one of these things, you have, you have a duopoly in, in, the, in the business. It's a big industry that has all, often been subsidized by, by domestic uh, interests. And, uh, and subsidies are, are always the subject of this case. Uh, but there are lots of, lots of players, lots of counterpoints. And uh, think of it as a complex civil litigation between uh, two firms in the same industry. A lot of times, the easiest thing to do is just kick the can, continue the litigation, raise another claim. Uh, so that's really what this has turned into. Uh, that's at least the best. That's the best uh, comparison. I and, ever and the irony, though, is that in a few years, I think they're both. We're both going to be competing with the Chinese. Right. They'd be better off putting this in the rearview mirror and maybe working together, much like the U.S.-Europe relationship overall. All right. Well, we'll have to wait for that because it's been going on since Carter, apparently. So hopefully we can get together with our allies and fix this. We'll see. I think once the EU gets its number, big or small, I think the United States won't have an excuse to not negotiate anymore. We come back to the table. Then, of course, you know, is this an issue where Trump wants to have an outcome before the election? Uh, I'm sure if he thought it's a, it would be a good outcome for us, sure. But if it's going to be a compromise, he may want to wait until after the election or he may want to just punt longer. There's been a lot of that. Speaking of election issues, let's talk about China. So China is committed to increase energy purchases from the U.S. by $52 billion over two years, which would average out to about $2.2 billion per month in 2020. But despite the plummeting energy prices, China has only bought $600 million worth of U.S. energy products versus the $10 0.5 billion dollar target. So in short, China, you know, would need to massively scale up in order to meet its phase 1 obligations. So what explains China's lagging energy purchases and despite the the low prices that we're offering them? Well, that's it. It's easy. Oil got cheap. You only consume so much as we found out even when oil is cheap like it has been and I mean $20 a barrel. The reason it was at $20 a barrel is there was no demand. Keep in mind, COVID happened in China just like here. In fact, it happened there first. Okay, their, their, their needs for hybrid hydrocarbons of all sorts, it's mostly a transport fuel, so 
probably people drove less when they were locked down. Sure. That's what happened to us. Not to mention we never saw futures negative like that before. I mean, right, exactly. Crazy. I mean, that, that there was there was actually no place to sell oil, and the futures market did temporarily go negative. Now it's it's stabilized back at roughly thirty dollars a barrel, but going from fifty to twenty, if you bought a twenty, you you could buy all you wanted and uh, not have unless you had a place to store it. Uh, it wasn't being taken off by consumption. So it's actually smart purchasing, but it's one of the problems. And Bill and I called this out uh, when we talked to Bob Schieffer way back when the phase one deal was signed, is that when you, when you make a deal based on quantitative outcomes, dollar value of exports, you're exposing yourself to these kinds of changes in the market that you can't control. Nobody, could, nobody controlled it. All right. And so we, we both at the time said you'd be better off by, you know, agreeing to market openness, agreeing to set a reciprocal openness or, or even if China opened more rather than a specific quantitative dollar value. But politicians like the dollar value. Now they got to live with it. Well, but are they buying from Russia and the Middle East instead of buying from us? Yes, there's rumors they're getting a deal. Everybody has cheap oil these days. Everybody has too much oil. Although every producer, I should say, has too much oil these days. And the prices are low in part because no place else to store. Sure, but so, but so all that's true, of course, but are they not interested in fulfilling the phase one obligations? Um, they probably have a story about how they're going to do that. Keep in mind, the purchasing agreements cover a two-year period. So they they'll they'll gladly pay us Tuesday for a barrel of Russian oil today. Uh huh. I think they're interested in fulfilling their commitments, and I, I've said this before. But my experience with them is when you corner them into specific quantitative uh, commitments with deadlines, they usually comply because it's embarrassing when they don't, and it's easy to measure when they don't. If you say you're going to buy this many billion dollars worth of oil and you don't do it, everybody knows. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, they're really good at, I think, complying with the letter of their agreements. They're not very good at complying with the spirit of their agreements. And this is one where the letter is, is everything. So I, I think they want to do it. I think they'll try to do it. It's increasingly appearing that, at, at least with respect to energy, it'll be very hard for them to do it for pre- precisely the reason Scott said. Uh, I'm more optimistic about agriculture, partly because a lot of that, I, I think something like close to half of their purchases end up being in the fourth quarter of, of the calendar year because of the crop cycle and because of their demand schedules. But energy, I think, is much more of a, you know, month by month by month by month, you expect some continuity. And we haven't seen that at, at the levels necessary. So I'm skeptical that they're going to meet the energy criteria. And I'm a little more optimistic that they'll meet the uh, agriculture criteria. And I think they'll try. And I also think the president is not going to, uh, you know, throw the agreement under the bus. Uh, I think politically that would be a mistake for him uh, because it would be taking what he has bragged as a significant accomplishment and trashing it. I mean, you know, the Chinese may trash it, he'll blame them, but I don't see him trashing it. Finally, guys, I want to ask you about one last thing, and that's tobacco. The WTO has backed Australia in its appeal over tobacco packaging laws. I don't really understand this, so you guys are going to have to break it down for me, but this involves plain packaging and its relationship to trade. Yeah, well, the backstory goes something like this. Australia, in order to reduce 
smoking, particularly smoking among young people, chose a very aggressive strategy. They, it's it's taxed, it's highly priced, so cigarettes are, are about, I think, about a dollar a piece in Australia. But they also wanted to reduce the attractiveness of uh, cigarettes as a as sort of a badge product or a branded product. So no Joe Camel. Well, not only no advertising, which would have gotten, and no, no Joe Camel, but no advertising at all, but also uh, no branding on the packaging. And so they, they introduced where all the packages were plain, they were in a particularly ugly color, and then trade names like Marlboro or, uh, or Camel would be shown in plain black and white type letters. So the, you didn't have any branding that carried over from the trademarks of those famous marks that, that were now being sold. They did their best to make it just as ugly as possible, hoping that, that kids would not want to show their friends their smokes or something like that. That was the, the logic behind it. But it's been subject to some, a lot of controversy because this is about as close as you can get to, uh, to what we would call a taking, uh, as you can imagine. Obviously, trademarks are very valuable entities. And this looks like a, a prohibition by government of, of, of using your mark, which is exactly what it is. Uh, now, it was first uh, tested in an investment dispute, which didn't decide the merits of the case. The investment dispute was was tossed out. They decided that the the uh, Philip Morris, it was a Philip Morris uh, entity in Hong Kong, did not have standing to bring the dispute. So that one sort of died off early. But the WTO dispute was brought by a couple of, of members, that is, member governments, who produced tobacco, and it was on it was on a different basis. Quick summary: there were two claims made by the tobacco grower com- countries against Australia. One is this was a technical barrier to trade that didn't have a rationale for it. And second, that it was a, it was a taking, uh, it was a violation of the, the, the intellectual property agreement within the WTO, the so-called TRIPS agreement. Uh, what the panel decided was that on, TV, on the grounds of technical barrier to trade, they, they, they couldn't prove that Australia was wrong, that the, the, the measure was totally useless. So it was a fairly low bar that, no, that, uh, that Australia cleared and the, uh, the, defend, or the, 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 the complaining uh, members couldn't. On uh, the intellectual property, the trademark protections, the TRIPS agreement, it's a little more subtle in that apparent, what, what, the, what the, the panel and the, the appellate body found is that TRIPS doesn't create a right to use a registered trademark. It creates a right to prevent other parties from unauthorized use, which is, real, which is really different. So whether or not the mark is permissible is not protected by TRIPS. So therefore, the government of Australia could prevent the use of the mark. Uh, and they, they went on uh, to, to different section of TRIPS to reinforce that point. So net-net, Australia gets its ugly packages and uh, uh, and both uh, Philip Morris Hong Kong and, uh, in the investment case and uh, the, the two economies who brought the WTO case uh, go away empty-handed. Thoughts? Yeah, full disclosure, I, when I was at the NFTC, I had tobacco company members, so we were very involved in this, this case. And as it turns out, on the losing side. Uh, and I, I'm not happy with the decision that, that was made. I, Scott's explained the whole thing uh, very well. The only thing I add is uh, I haven't looked at the data the last year or two, but when the Australians first started this, the first couple of years of data uh, suggested that it, it had not had a significant effect on uh, on reducing smoking, particularly smoking amongst uh, amongst young people. The the statistics just weren't there. 
And I think most economists would say that the um, the more effective, if that's your policy goal, is to reduce uh, smoking, the more effective way to do it is through high taxes, and and make it uh, uneconomic for them to do it. I mean, I, Scott didn't mention it, the, the the packages were not just plain brown paper. I mean, they were plain brown paper, but they were also covered with lots of photographs of diseased lungs. So they were designed to be repellent, uh, not just plain. <laughs> it was called plain packaging, but it wasn't plain. But what disappeared was the trademark, the logo, which I've always thought was a taking. I mean, I, I think that basically an expropriation of their of their property. I mean, Scott, I think, has done an excellent job of explaining the, uh, the rationale. I don't buy it, and I don't think that was the intent of the uh, of the negotiators when they when they set up this provision. But you know, the appellate body has ruled. It'll be interesting to see if the United States has any comment on that because we were not a party to the case at any stage. We have attacked a number of the other late panel reports on the grounds that, you know, the, the appellate body, I mean, the late appellate body uh, decisions, this is the last one. And we've attacked the, the previous two or three that came out after the appellate body members' terms expired on the grounds that they were illegitimate. Be interested to see if they uh, say that in, the, in this case or not. So far, I don't think there's been a comment. Well, that's a fascinating subject, something to watch. We're out of time for today, but gentlemen, thanks for your insights as always. Hopefully, we'll be back in the office soon. But you know, obviously, we have to be really conscious of health and watch what's happening with you know spikes in coronavirus. So, for now, we'll continue to do our podcast from home. So thanks again, guys, and we'll see you next week. Thank Thank you. you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. Thank you, Trade Guys. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.